As hospitals and health systems seek strategies to improve equity, addressing medical debt should be a top priority. Most consumers can't afford an unexpected expense of $400 or more, and health insurance does not always protect consumers from unexpected out-of-pocket expenses and co-pays that can lead to debt. Moreover, research shows that the stress associated with debt is associated with triple the incidence of mental health conditions, such as anxiety, stress, or depression. That was Michelle Prozer reading from her first opinion essay, How Hospitals and Health Systems Can Help Patients Avoid Medical Debt. Michelle is the Senior Director for Healthcare for the Chicago-based Financial Health Network, a nonprofit that works to improve financial health for all. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, COO of STAT. More than ever before, patients are seeking a more consistent healthcare experience tailored to their exact needs. I'm joined by Peter Shulam, MD, PhD, Global Head of Preclinical, Clinical, and Medical Affairs at Johnson & Johnson MedTech to discuss how technology is helping deliver on this vision. Thank you, Angus. At Johnson & Johnson, we are driven to improve surgical outcomes and elevate the standard of care globally. An example of how we're tackling this is by working to combine robotics, advanced imaging, and digitally enabled instruments all on a connected digital ecosystem so we can generate, aggregate, and process data. Data analytics will provide valuable insights and predictions to help augment surgical skill and enhance surgical judgment with the goal of improving outcomes and reducing surgeon variability. Think of an airplane pilot who is surrounded by technology within the cockpit that assists in the takeoff, flying, and landing of that plane. Our vision is to create a surgical cockpit with technology that will provide guidance and navigation to the surgeon to yield a more consistent performance and outcome. As this capability expands, patients could have comparable surgical outcomes no matter where they are in the world. The possibilities are endless. Thank you, Peter. Visit jnjmedtech.com to learn more. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Michelle. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's, let's dive right into this. And I, I know people have heard about medical debt, but how big a problem is it in the U.S.? It's huge. One in five U.S. households report that they have medical debt. According to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which tracks consumer medical debt and does other work to protect consumers from harmful financial um, practices, Medical debt is now the most common type of third-party debt collection listed on consumer credit reports. As of last year, 58% of all bills and collections on people's credit records were for medical um, bills. And uh, to put that into context, the second most common only came out to 15%, and that was for telecommunications debt. 
communities of color, those experiencing disabilities, those with lower incomes, and women disproportionately have more medical debt. And they have it more often. They have more of it. So as an industry, it's also very big. One estimate published last year in the journal JAMA found that medical debt amounted to at least $140 billion nationally. I should also point out this is probably an underestimate, and researchers seem to think it is. So, for example, this does not include the cases where people pay for medical bills with their credit card and are taking on credit card debt. Oh, wow. So when uh, just a clarification for a second. When you say third-party medical debt, do you mean that sometimes people owe hospitals or medical practices, and sometimes those hospitals and medical practices turn over the debt to debt collectors? They often do that. Yikes. So you're not only dealing with a hospital or a, a, a health practice, but then you're dealing with what I can only assume are aggressive debt collectors. Right. And I think that really um, complicates the situation quite a bit. And it is a cause of concern for so many consumers who are experiencing medical debt. Debt collection is a common, um, from creditors or collection agencies, is a common problem and is a common thing that people um, do experience with um, healthcare. So what happens for most people is that Consumers tend to experience medical debt this way. They receive health care, they're billed for it, and then they're unable to cover the cost of that care. The health care provider or the debt collection agency is um, a debt collection agency could be contracted by that provider, can aggressively pursue those patients for collections. And in many cases, those turn into lawsuits. It can turn into liens on people's homes. They can also garnish people's wages. And often people don't even know they have that debt until the drastic action actually occurs. So, Michelle, what are some of the stories you've heard about how people get into medical debt? So often people, um, we often hear is that people go to the emergency room. They have an unexpected healthcare event that requires hospitalization, requires a lot more diagnostic treatment, requires an ER visit. Um, they go in not always knowing they need it. They don't always know the cost of that visit. And they end up with bills that they um, don't expect. And I think that it's really important to point out that be medical debt being unexpected in most cases is a really critical point because it's so different from other forms of consumer debt like um student loans and mortgages and so on. Uh, hospitals, hospitalizations and ER visits actually make up the largest dollar amounts owed. We've also heard people um, end up in medical debt through dental procedures and, and other places like that. So it really can be from a wide variety of healthcare needs, but frequently it is unexpected. I'll say too, it's often driven by not just the fact that it's an unexpected event, um, opaque healthcare prices, um, high out-of-pocket expenses. There's a lack of awareness of charity care programs. Um, it's a frequent problem that we hear about. They didn't know they were eligible. They didn't know how to apply for it. There's also frequently a misunderstanding about what insurance will pay. Um, and there's also limited provider options or networks where people um, struggle with, too, trying to find an affordable provider within their network. Well, the whole Byzantine structure of care has to be a, a contributor. You could go to an emergency department and need some lab work, not knowing that the lab is, quote, out of network and so not covered. It's just, it, none of us really 
I, I don't think we should be required to know that no, stuff. Exactly. But, you know, we look at it as um, a systems issue too, right? So people are getting medical debt by the way they experience the healthcare system, right? So what's happening in the healthcare system? We're seeing rising healthcare costs. We're seeing um, greater expectations of out-of-pocket expenses that people have to pay on their own, more cost sharing. Um, but they'll have this, say, for example, they'll have an unexpected event. They'll go to the healthcare or um, provider, they'll go to the emergency room, they won't know what um, costs are, um, they won't always know what is medically necessary or not, they won't always know what they're being billed for, um, but they won't even know um, other options for financing that. So we see these as like large system issues that are really um, um, necessary to engage, not just the hospitals and healthcare systems where people are going for care and frequently ending up in medical debt, um, but also insurers, um, you know, as well as the employers who are sponsoring insurance. So what we're looking to do is to really elevate this as um, a systems issue, but that as the practices that the hospitals and health systems um, insurers and employers have in response to the larger health system. Um, this is how patients end up experiencing medical debt. And so what is it that we can do as a system to have actions that allow us to prevent medical debt? So you mentioned that having health insurance doesn't really necessarily protect you from medical debt. That's sort of surprising. Right. We're actually seeing that quite a bit. So unfortunately, a large number of people who have health insurance, particularly from um, their employers, are considered underinsured because of the amount of out-of-pocket um, cost sharings they have and deductibles and co-pays relative to their income. And so when we're finding as you know costs are rising and their out-of-pocket expectations are going up, they're often left unprotected from those high costs of healthcare. And that's particularly problematic for people who have you know, higher healthcare needs, whether they have chronic conditions um, or long-term illnesses, or are just you know, um, trying to receive diagnos- diagnoses for new conditions. You know, it's sort of easy to talk about this and think of medical debt in an abstract way. Can you describe how it really affects individuals or families financially first? Yeah. So um, I I think it's pretty broad. So obviously, financially is a really um, big problem. Um, What happens is uh, this might be a good place for me to actually stop and define how we as an organization at the Financial Health Network define financial health. So we consider financial health as someone's spending power, their ability to save, the debt they have and ability to borrow, and um, their ability to plan. So those things that allow them to build resilience in the face of unexpected events, including medical debt, and allow them to thrive in the long term. It's more than just income. And emerging research shows that financial health is really a better predictor of health. And, you know, when we measure financial health this way, huh. um, it can look at, uh, we can, you know, we look at the experience of the financially vulnerable, those who experience the most financial hardship across all these domains. And then we can look at the experience of those who are financially healthy. But in between, we have a group called financially coping. And an unexpected event can actually take somebody who's doing financially okay and then really make them far more financially strained and financially um, vulnerable. So the ways it impacts, medical debt will impact 
families and individuals is really on multiple fronts. Like we said, it first is on financial stability. Um, people can have liens placed on their homes, their wage, wages garnished, bankruptcy. It can also disrupt their credit, their credit scores, making it harder and more costly for people to get mortgages, take out small business loans. Um, although I will say, and I can talk about this more later, the Biden administration, other agencies, and even the three largest credit reporting agencies are starting some work to reduce that risk. But, you know, other financial implications of medical debt, it can have long-term implications for savings, as well as day-to-day budget choices. It forces trade-offs between do we pay off the debt or do we pay for the food? Do we pay for our mortgage or our rent? Do we pay for the gas that goes in the car? Do we pay for the next healthcare we, issue we need or the, the next prescription we need? And like I said, it makes it harder for people to pay off other debts like credit cards or, or student loans. But that's not the only place it really impacts families and individuals. It, of course, impacts physical and mental well-being. So obviously, by having a cost concern in healthcare, it can hamper people's ability to access care when they need it or um, pay for pharmaceutical or prescriptions. Studies have shown that medical debt um, actually is linked to worsening health status, worsening outcomes higher levels of pain, and even increased mortality risk. And it's also linked to mental health. Uh, we've seen that um, trip it, it, people with debt concerns have tripled the incidence of me- mental health conditions, such as anxiety, stress, or dis- depression. And I think because these are cascading impacts on financial well-being, physical and mental health, and even social well-being, right, is forcing trade-offs between can I pay for medical, my medical debt bills, or do I pay for food or housing? Medical debt itself is really a social determinant of health. And of course, is because it's disproportionately impacting people of color, um, it's also a health equity issue. What, what you describe sounds like the Ouroboros, that nasty image of the serpent devouring its own tail. So you've got somebody goes into medical debt, that worsens their health, they're going to need more medical care. It just sounds like a a, a terrible cycle. It really is. And we've even spoken to consumers and heard stories about it. You know, people who don't go to the doctor because they're worried about bill, but yet their health conditions are worsening or they have a new issue and they don't know where to go, but they're too afraid to go to the doctor. And when they do, they have, they've delayed their care for so long, their health situation has worsened. So their costs have gone up even more and it's very stressful. And it just has that, that terrible cycle of downward spiraling health, financial health and well-being. Wow. Terrible situation. What kinds of options do people currently have for getting out of medical debt? So I think it's a really complex issue. I don't think it's easy, especially when people don't know they have medical debt, for example, until legal action might be taken against them. Um, Consumers are generally not always aware of their rights. There are some resources out there. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or CFPB has um, tips for navigating complex medical bills and collections. Um, tips for informing consumers of their rights um, and the protections they have. It's also a place that people can go to submit complaints against um, companies that have aggressive debt collection actions or even billing practices. And the CFPB is actually going to be expanding those resources as well. There are also companies and vendors out there that are helping consumers manage debt 
um, or, um, you know, or help them navigate um, or really negotiate debt um, repayment options. And there are lots of tips out there on um, online and, and support groups as well. Um, I also, you know, we've had the pleasure of being able to work with organizations out there advocating on behalf of consumers and helping them understand their rights and negotiate their debt. So we've worked with Community Catalyst, which is in a lot to actually advocate for policy change. And we've had the benefit of working with RIP Medical Debt, which uses donations to buy large bundles of medical debt from healthcare systems and relieving that debt among the consumers whose debts have been purchased. And we were very fortunate to have both of them on our stakeholder advisory group as we were developing these reports. That's a very interesting organization. You mentioned, um, so is that part of, you mentioned earlier, uh, charity-based options. Would that fall into that camp? So um, nonprofit hospitals are required to have a financial assistance program that includes charity assistance. Um, those um, programs will vary hospital by hospital. In most cases, there are some situations where there might be some state requirements to have specific standards. Um, but uh, we have found that most consumers are unaware of those or don't know how to access them. Um, there was one study done that found that 45% of hospitals um, were still um, um, billing or, or, or consumers who had medical debt um, when they could have actually been eligible for charity care programs to begin with. So, you know, student loan forgiveness is kind of a big hot topic. Um, is anybody pushing that for medical debt on a large scale? Um, I don't know if I could speak to that internally. I do know that um, the Biden administration, as well as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, has really spent a lot of time looking at medical debt and aggressive collection practices, particularly as it harms people's credit. And so um, we're seeing the, um, just a couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration came out with a new executive order focused on medical debt, where they're, pre- they're leaning into this far more. On the what the CFPB is really trying to do is help folks navigate and understand their rights, as I mentioned earlier. Um, they're also going to be doing more um, to hold the debt collectors and those agencies um, more accountable. Um, we also have seen um, the three largest credit reporting agencies um, uh, make some changes to to allow uh, so that the medical debt is not as impactful or harmful on people's credit reports as they once were. That's going to remove medical uh, about billions of dollars of medical debt um, from credit reports for two thirds of Americans with medical debt under five hundred dollars. So that's one avenue that's really important. Um, it doesn't prevent medical debt from happening but it really is a critical piece in allowing people more flexibility to have credit um, scores that they can use to access um, loans um, that they need for purchasing homes or um, expanding businesses or, or so on. So you, you stole my, you stole my next question, oh, okay. which, <laughs> which is great because all the things that we've been talking about to here are basically trying to fix a problem after it's already occurred. And I think you and your colleagues at the Financial Health Network believe that there's a lot more to be done, including prevention. So can you talk about some of those, some ways to actually prevent medical debt from happening? Yeah. So 
Um, so going back to what the Biden administration is trying to do and their executive order, um, so they've taken several steps their, um, across all federal agencies to help um, lessen the burden of medical debt. And a lot of what they're doing really is around consumer education through CFPB, um, uh, eliminating medical debt as a factor in underwriting for credit programs so that people have more access to um, credit. They're doing several other actions. One action that we're particularly excited about um, or interested to hear more about is um, really focusing on holding what they're calling holding providers more accountable for offering non-predatory um, payment plans or financial assistance to all um, eligible patients. And we think this is really key because it can help stop medical debt um, to begin with. We have said earlier that medical debt comes about by the way patients experience the healthcare system, which means that those health system actors like hospitals and health systems and, and others should be taking steps prior to the point of when patients incur that debt. We're really talking about improving care experiences because you can't separate the cost experiences from other experiences um, and in and, and addressing it prior to people, you know, accruing that debt, you're going to be preventing um, both medical debt and improving those care experiences. And I think this is really critical. Um, if we want to improve health outcomes and eliminate health inequities as an entire healthcare system, we really need to think about those care experiences more holistically, of which medical billing is an important part and medical debt is, you know, that worst case situation of that billing process. So in part, people should they should know in advance how much they're paying for what they're getting. So we developed a set of recommendations for those key stakeholders, of which hospitals and health systems are one. Um, and a big piece of that is really around and um, is you know helping patients make informed decisions about that cost of care through greater transparency. So I'll, I'll just say that we developed these with the support of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and with the um, support and partnership of a stakeholder advisory group, which represented consumers, hospitals, insurers, employers, philanthropy, and others. I've, I've actually mentioned a couple here. Um, and what we're really hoping that hospitals and health systems um, in particular can do um, is there are several buckets. One, we talked about that um, in supporting informed decision-making because you're absolutely right. Patients need to know uh, the cost of care before they receive that care. Uh, right now, hospitals, hospitals are required um, to make publicly available the cost of shoppable healthcare services. Um, mo a lot of hospitals are not actually fully adhering to that yet. Um, and we're we talk about in the report how critical that is to help elevate and improve the efficiency of price transparency tools so that patients really understand those costs before. But that can't be done on its own, right? There's a lot more we need to do to help inform patients and help them make the right choices that are available to them. So obviously, they need to know the cost of care. And they need to, um, you know, where are they who are they talking to about their care options? They're talking to their clinicians, their care team members. So providers themselves play a really important role in this. So we talk a lot about cost of care conversations and um, how we can actually equip um, the providers more, training them to have these types of conversations. So I can see having that conversation if I go in to talk to uh, an orthopod about having my creaky knees replaced. 
But it, I'm having a hard time picturing it if I'm lying on a emergency department gurney with appendicitis, um, you know, in excruciating pain. I'm not going to be looking up a hospital website. And even if you go to most of those, many of those hospital websites, it's just gibberish. You you really can't figure out what it actually is that you're looking at. Yeah, no, we agree. So another bucket of our recommendations is around improving financial assistance and repayment options themselves. So some from our uh, stakeholder advisor group called these the quick wins that hospitals and health systems should consider. And I should say with flexible billing options, or sorry, flexible repayment options, I think there's a lot to consider there. Um, thinking through long-term and interest-free payment plans um, which can actually increase medical repayment. You know, the hospitals um, can find that if they make it easier for people to contribute the cost of care, then to pay for their services, then they may actually recruit more of that cost than they would have if that person had medical debt and it went into collections. Um, but those repayment options really need to fit the specific needs and circumstances of individuals. Um, is it, you know, they should not be based on a certain credit score for a person. It should not be, um, you know, um, come with interest rates that would end up, you know, having the person end up in more debt uh, to begin with. And it should factor that person's um, healthcare needs as well, right? Is this going to be a long-term treatment plan? Um, are there frequent office visits and prescriptions that this person is going to have to have to um, endure? You mentioned a couple good resources for consumers. I'll I'll be in touch with you offline when this is over, and we'll add some of those good resources to the podcast webpage when it comes out. Um, Michelle, you <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you end your essay with this upbeat sentence. I'm quoting here: "By working to prevent medical debt, hospitals and health systems, in tandem with insurers and employers." can not only improve patient wellness, but also improve patient care experiences, increase value to patients, build patient trust and loyalty, and signal a commitment to patient and and signal a commitment to patient and community equity and well-being. Do you think we can actually get there? I'm an optimistic type of person, so I think we can. Um, I think a lot has to happen. Um, I think it's um, something that as our health system holistically or across the whole health system thinks about ways that we can advance on our mission and goal of improving healthcare outcomes um, and improving health equity. It's part of that piece that we can't do work to improve health outcomes and improve equity without thinking through the patient care experience of which Billing and costs is an important part of, but I know it's a lot of work, but I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Michelle. I wish you and your colleagues all the best in getting where you're headed. Thank you very much. We're really excited about this, and we hope that folks find the reports and resources we put out helpful. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. 
Many of you wrote in after last week's episode on treating chronic pain, which seemed to resonate with folks, or at least get them riled up. Please don't hesitate to join the conversation about that or any other episode, or let me know what topics you think the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time. Mm-hmm.